Our scripture reading for this morning comes from the book of Genesis. If you have been here with us for a while, you know we've been working through the book of Genesis on and off for a number of for a number of years. I think it was 2021 when we started the book of Genesis. Uh, we're still here. Uh, but this morning we are in Genesis 29, verses 1 through 30. Before we read that together, let's pray together. Our Father, we draw near to hear from you this morning. We long to hear your voice speaking to us through the scriptures. And we pray that you would open our hearts and open our minds and open our ears to hear what you have to say to us. We pray that you would give me words to say. We pray that you would sanctify those words by your spirit, that they would come out as true and right and good. And we pray that you would help us to receive them deeply into our hearts and be built up in Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 29. Verses 1 through 30. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the sheep would roll the stone the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to one of them, my brothers, where do you come from? They said, we are from Haran. He said to them, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, we know him. And he said to them, is it well with him? They said, it is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. 
Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter, Rachel, to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant, Bilhah, to his daughter, Rachel, to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. Why are we studying the book of Genesis? Have you wondered that? Why this book? Right? Why the book of Genesis? Is it just because it's got some good stories in it? Is it because it's got more drama than a daytime TV show? Is it just because I personally really love this book? Well, there are a number of reasons, of course. We won't go into them all. But one is this. What, what is God's purpose for the book of Genesis? I was thinking about that a few weeks back, and I think Genesis is, is like a discipleship primer. It's the ABCs of the faith. In Genesis, we learn about the power of God in creation and the providence, the plan, and the promises of God in, his, in, in the life of the patriarchs. Here we see the beginnings of God's covenant relationship with his people. Uh, think about the first readers of Genesis, the, the nation of Israel. Why did they need this book? Well, this new nation recently come out of slavery in Egypt. What did they need to know? They need to know that this God who just brought them out has a history with them, that he has made promises to them that he will walk beside them. Israel learned about that covenant life as they watched God make promises to the patriarchs and the matriarchs and walk with the patriarchs and the matriarchs in the book of Genesis. See, how do we know what it looks like to walk with God? We, we see it as God works out his plan to send Jesus and patiently walks with his children in the meantime. Well, we too live in the meantime. Christ has come, but Christ is also coming again. And so we too wait. We too are pilgrims on earth. We too enjoy God's presence by the presence of his Holy Spirit, even as we anticipate the fullness to come. And so as we look at this story of Jacob this morning, we're going to ask, what, what does it look like to walk with God? And this morning we'll see three things. Walking with God looks like accepting God's sovereign care receiving God's fatherly discipline and humbling ourselves to serve even as we anticipate glory. We're going to see that in the life of Jacob and, and then we'll actually go back and see that again, how that plays out in the life of Jesus 
And finally, we'll see how that plays out today for you and me. But it's the same three points, so to speak, for each of those three points. We'll talk about God's sovereign care, God's fatherly discipline, and service unto glory. So first, what what does it look like? What does walking with God look like in the life of Jacob? Well, there is never a dull moment with Jacob. Have you noticed? Uh, If you get bored with this story, you lack imagination. Uh, That's not meant to be an insult, but it's true, right? Put yourself in his world. It's insane. He is on the run because his brother wants to kill him. God gives him a a vision of a literal stairway to heaven with angels ascending and descending. And this week, he works for seven years to marry the girl of his dreams, only to wake up in the morning next to her sister. Talk about family drama. What do we see about walking with God in the life of Jacob? Well, first, we see God's sovereign care. Jacob is is on his way. He was sent out by his parents to find a bride among his mother's relatives, who were also his father's relatives, but that's another story. Uh, He goes on this journey, and he comes to the land of the people of the east, verse 1. And and one commentator suggests that 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 probably means Jacob actually doesn't exactly know where he is. Uh, The writer is telling the story from his perspective. And so it, he, he just knows it's the people of the East. He's, he's maybe not lost exactly, but you know it's a big world. He doesn't know exactly where he is except in the East. And Jacob looks up in verse 2 and he sees a well in a field. And, and, and look at that. He, he notices three flocks of sheep near the well with their shepherds. A great big stone covering the well's mouth. And so Jacob approaches these guys and he says in verse 4, My brothers, where do you come from? Again, indicating Jacob doesn't fully know where he is. And they say, we are from Haran. Now, that's exactly where Jacob is trying to go. He, he asks if they know Laban, the son of Nahor, Jacob's uncle. And they say, yes. He says, is it well with him? They say, it is well. And, and look there. Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. Now, Jacob, at this point, tries to get rid of these guys. And I'm not entirely sure why. He sees Rachel coming from afar. Uh, he, he can't quite be smitten with, him, with her already, we don't think anyway. The narrator, narrator doesn't tell us that yet. Uh, but he sees her coming, and so he tries to get rid of them in verse 7. And they essentially say, we're not going anywhere in verse 8. And, and then Rachel shows up. And as soon as she shows up, Jacob kicks into high gear. Uh, you might think all that he does in verse 10 is for Rachel to impress her, especially once we get to the rest of the story. And perhaps it is, but verse 10 really stresses not Rachel, but Laban. It says, now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. See, Jacob clearly wants to make a good impression on Laban, his mother's brother. And this could go either way, but, you know, with what we know of Jacob, the the schemer, the trickster, the deceiver, it looks like he is trying to ingratiate himself with Laban. He's trying to to make a good impression, a good first impression. At this point, Jacob kisses Rachel, and he weeps out loud, and then he tells her that they are related, which seems backward to me. Uh, but, But pause here for a moment. And we've seen a story like this before. Do you remember? Abraham sent his servant, Eliezer, to Haran to find a bride for Isaac. Eliezer left Abraham. He goes to Mesopotamia and ends up at a well. 
And at that well, perhaps this very same well, we don't know, he meets Rebekah, who becomes Isaac's bride. Now, Old Testament scholars call this a type story. It happens multiple times in Scripture. Eliezer and Rebekah, Jacob and Rachel, Moses and his future wife Zipporah, Jesus and the woman at the well. Again and again, we see a man meeting a woman at a well. And some people think, because this is a a, a type story, as they call it, that these things didn't really happen, that the writer was just making it up, taking a common trope and weaving it into his narrative. But it was common for a reason, because people in the ancient world with no running water frequently met at wells. It is the proverbial watering hole for a reason. Even today in offices, or at least 20 years ago, it was proverbial that people would talk about uh, chatting it up around the water fountain or the coffee pot, right? There are certain places where people routinely meet. In the ancient world, that was the well. But the important thing to notice here is how this story relates to that earlier one in Genesis. Do you remember Eliezer, Abraham's servant? He left Canaan with a caravan of 10 camels. Jacob, on the run, leaves apparently with nothing. Eliezer prayed for success, and then he looked for God to answer his prayer. Jacob, by contrast, takes matters into his own hands. No no prayer, no looking for God to answer. Eliezer looks for a woman of virtue, uh, one who has a servant's heart and waters his flocks. Jacob is ultimately enamored with looks, and is more concerned to impress by feats of his physical strength, by moving the large stone single-handedly. Eliezer praises God for leading him in the right place. Jacob is moved, and he weeps in verse 11, but praise is conspicuously absent. And so already in the story, Jacob's piety is clearly suspect here. He's not looking for God to work. He's not looking for God to act. He's not praying for God's work. He's trusting in his own effort. And yet God's sovereignty is no less apparent, is it? God provides for Jacob, as he did for Eliezer. Jacob just happens to stumble upon the right well at the right time with the right people there. He shows up and boom, five minutes later, so does Rachel, his cousin. God's timing is perfect. And while Jacob neglects praise, Eliezer's words apply equally here. In Genesis 24, we're told of Eliezer, the man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord and said, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. And God did the same thing right here for Jacob. At the end of that story, Laban's conclusion is in chapter 24, verse 50, the thing has come from the Lord. Right? The whole story in Genesis 24 is designed to highlight the providence of God, that God provided for uh, Isaac, a bride, Rebekah. And, and as there, so here, God leads Jacob to his mother's family, the very place he was intending to go. Again, it's a big world, but he, he ends up in the right place at the right time with the right people present. But we not only see God's sovereign care in the life of Jacob, we also see God's fatherly discipline. Rachel runs and tells her father Laban what's going on. Laban hears the news about Jacob and he runs to meet him. He embraces him and kisses him and brings him into his house. Now, do you remember Laban? Uh, Back in chapter 24, Laban ran to the well. But there we were told in chapter 24, 30, 
As soon as Laban saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms, he went to the man. See, Laban is motivated by greed. Wealthy Abraham's servant shows up, and so Laban moves into action. Now Abraham's grandson shows up, and Laban moves into action. In fact, some of the rabbis said the reason Laban hugged Jacob was to feel if he was hiding any money in his robes. I don't know if that's true, but that's what they said. Jacob, at this point, we are told in verse 13, told Laban all these things. Of course, what are these things? Did Jacob really tell the whole story of how he ended up here? His deception, his brother, his running for his life? If so, it perhaps gives new meaning to verse 14's, uh, Laban's word in, words in verse 14 when he says, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. You're just like me, a schemer. And so Jacob stays with him for a month. Now, until verse 15, um, we don't realize that Laban has been putting Jacob to work. Laban says, because you are my kinsman, uh, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me what shall your wages be? Now, commentators actually seem to suggest that, that actually, yes, because Jacob is family, he should serve for nothing and then partake freely in the bounty of Laban's house. Laban, rather than treating Jacob like a member of his family, treats him like a hired servant. What shall your wages be? Now, at this point, we're told something that has confounded commentators. Uh, as an aside, the narrator says, Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. What does it mean that Leah's eyes were weak? Uh, some think it means Leah was getting older. Uh, others say this description likely implies that Leah's eyes lack the fire and sparkle, I don't know what that was, but lack the fire and sparkle that was prized as beautiful in the ancient Near East. Uh, textually, I want to see, is there a connection to Isaac's blindness? Just a few chapters earlier, are these somehow related? But whatever is being said, the point actually is pretty clear, isn't it? Rachel is more attractive than Leah. And now we We'll get to the heartache that this causes next week. Uh, but the point now is obvious because the writer tells us Jacob loved Rachel. He was attracted to her. As a result, he offers seven years of work for her hand in marriage. Uh, Jacob was offering seven years' work as a bride price. Now, we're uncomfortable with that whole idea of bride prices in our culture. This is a, a cultural difference in how we value people and think about people. And scripture is actually not commenting on the rightness or wrongness of that cultural practice here. And so I'm not going to take time to delve into that either, except to say this. Scripture is not in any way devaluing women or endorsing the view that women should be seen as cattle to be bought and sold. That is not the case. But there actually is somebody in the story who does see it like that. It's Laban. Uh, in fact, the name Leah likely means wild cow. And Rachel means ewe lamb. So Laban does see his daughters as little more than cattle. His actions and his character are put in a bad light. Now the other thing we need to see is this. Jacob is offering an exorbitant price. Apparently his infatuation with Rachel has blinded him, as infatuation so often does in young men, or apparently men of any age since Jacob is 40. The Old Testament suggests the upper limit of a bride price was 50 shekels. 
Now, a month's labor in that day uh, would be between one and one half shekels per month, so seven years of labor would be between 42 and 84 shekels, uh, which uh, ranges between pretty high up there and absurd as a bride price. Jacob seems to be going above and beyond. He is so smitten with Rachel's good looks. Uh, again, to put this in perspective, uh, in, in uh, Exodus 21 and Deuteronomy 15, we're told that slaves in Israel had to be set free after six years. Well, Jacob offers to work for seven. Laban is taking advantage of the poor and alone and hopelessly in love, Jacob. Laban agrees to this deal because it's pretty good for him, though carefully you'll notice never mentioning Rachel's name in verse 19. He says, it's good for me to give her to you. And Jacob serves Laban for seven years. It seemed but a few days because of his love for her. And at the end of that seven years, Jacob is curt with Laban. In verse 21, he says, give me my wife that I may go into her for my time is completed. Why was Jacob so demanding at this point? Well, likely he had come to know Laban through the seven years. He had come to know Laban's character, his shrewdness, his dishonesty. And he knew that Laban would attempt to get out of his deal. And so he came out, right out, and demanded, give me my wife. And of course, Jacob was right to be suspicious, wasn't he? But Laban seemingly obliges. He gathers all his neighbors and makes a feast. Uh, the word implies drinking, by the way, which is likely relevant for what happens next. And in the evening, in verse 23, Laban takes Leah, not Rachel, Leah, and brings her to Jacob, and he sleeps with her consummating the marriage. Now, many have asked, how could Jacob possibly not know? And the answer is threefold, actually. First, the bride at a wedding in the ancient Near East was veiled. Second, it was the evening, we're told, so it was dark. And third, Jacob, we can at least imagine, likely had a bit too much to drink at his wedding reception. And so this wouldn't be the first time a drunken man was taken advantage of in the book of Genesis. Just go back to earlier chapters. Remember Lot? At least one early rabbi points out that Leah is in on it and so must have pretended to be her sister Rachel. And so Laban switches his daughters in verse 25 in the morning. Behold, it was Leah. And Jacob is furious, as you would imagine he should be. And he says, what is this you have done to me? That's the fourth time, by the way, that question has been asked in Genesis. The first was God asking it of Eve in uh, Genesis 3. Uh, what have you done, Jacob demands? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? And this is the key word, isn't it? Laban deceived Jacob. The deceiver has been deceived. The one who tricked his father in false clothes under the cover of his father's blindness by switching one brother for another has now had sisters switched on him, being tricked likely by her wedding veil under cover of night and perhaps a bit too much to drink. One commentator put it succinctly, in Genesis 27, two brothers were exchanged by a trick before a blind man. And in Genesis 29, two sisters are exchanged by a trick in the darkness of night and behind a veil, which eliminate Jacob's sight. Now, this is what we call poetic justice. Jacob got what he gave. There is a certain dramatic irony here. We're clued in the verse before Jacob, and then behold, it was Leah. But it is the poetic justice or the retributive justice that is important to see. What he gave came back upon him. The deceiver was deceived. 
Scripture says in multiple places, for example, Proverbs 3.12, the Lord disciplines him whom he loves as a father the son in whom he delights. God is here filing off the hard edges of Jacob's character. He is giving him a taste of his own medicine. He is bringing down the hammer of justice, not to punish, don't misunderstand, but to correct. Proverbs 3.12, the Lord disciplines him whom he loves as a father the son in whom he delights. And so what do we see in the life of Jacob? We see God's sovereign care coupled with God's fatherly discipline, giving him a taste of his own medicine to correct him, to rebuke him. Finally, third, we see service unto glory. Uh, There's nothing glorious here, of course. Uh, After Jacob is tricked, he has no real options. He loves Rachel, but he married Leah. Their marriage had been consummated on the wedding night. Apparently, that was the extent of the ceremony in that day. And so Laban gives a kind of self-righteous response to Jacob's question. When Jacob says, what have you done? Notice what Laban says in verse 26. He says, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Whether Jacob fessed up on the first night or over the next seven years, Laban had come to know the tale of Jacob stealing the birthright, the younger for the older. And so his words in verse 26 are a subtle dig. It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. You may have supplanted your brother, Laban is saying, but that's not the way we do things here. It's a dig at Jacob, but perhaps also another part of the subtle rebuke, or maybe not so subtle rebuke from the Lord for his lies and deception. Laban offers Rachel as well uh, if Jacob will serve another seven years. Jacob feels he doesn't have much choice, perhaps. Normally in the ancient world, your relatives were your protection, but here Jacob needs to be protected from Laban, so he simply yields. He finishes Leah's week, likely meaning uh, the wedding party week, and then Laban gives him Rachel as well to be his wife. Now, uh, by the way, the Old Testament clearly forbids a man to marry both a woman and her sister, Leviticus 18.18. What's interesting then is this, the Israelites felt no need to cover up what had happened in their past, which speaks to both the antiquity and the truthfulness of this story. They were telling it like it was. Now, notice where this story ends. Jacob, as a servant, for 14 years in his relative's house. Now, pause and think about that. Think about the oracle before he was born. Do you remember that? And the blessing of Isaac that was so costly for him. In Genesis 25, 23, we were told the older will serve the younger, meaning the older Esau would serve the younger Jacob. In Genesis 27, 29, Isaac blesses him saying, let peoples serve you and the nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. Isn't it interesting that the one who is to be served first becomes a servant? It seems backwards, right? Wrong even, but God had promised he would be served, we say. Where is God's promise now? Where is the oracle? Where is the blessing? I thought God's plans were sure. Well, you know, on the one hand, this story is just a piece, isn't it? It's just a part of Jacob's life. Often we are in the middle of our story and we can't see the end. And we wonder if God is good. We doubt his plan and his purposes and his promises, but the story's not over. The final credits have not yet rolled. God is bringing Jacob low so that he can lift him up. The one who is to be served must first serve. Jacob must first serve for his bride. Only then, through this humbling time in exile, will he be ready to be served. 
God is going to lift up his people Israel and then lead them to conquer the promised land, but first they must go through slavery in Egypt. Service comes before being served. Being brought low comes before being lifted up. Being humbled comes before exaltation. And what does walking with God look like in the life of Jacob? It looks like God's sovereign care. He led him exactly where he needed to go. God was sovereign over those details. It looks like God's fatherly discipline as he brings him to Laban, the one person who can out Jacob, Jacob. And as he humbles him through service in the hope of the fulfillment of the promise and the exaltation. That's the pattern of God's covenant discipleship. Now let's a little more briefly see this pattern play out first in the life of Jesus and then in our own lives. So second, what is it, what does walking with God look like in the life of Jesus? Jesus' life is characterized by God's sovereign care from the moment of his birth. Uh, From the moment he was born, he had to be protected from Herod who murdered the baby boys of Bethlehem, but God protected him. To the time when Jesus repeatedly throughout the Gospels is escaping those who would arrest him and put him to death before his time. God cared for him. God cared for Jesus in the wilderness when tempted by the devil. Satan said, turn these stones into bread, but Jesus trusted in his father. And once Satan had departed, the angels came and ministered to him. Jesus commended God's sovereign care in Matthew 6, 26. He said, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And at the end of his life, Jesus entrusted himself into his father's hands. In the garden, he said, not my will, but yours be done. On the cross, he said, into your hands I commit my spirit. See, Jesus rested in his father's sovereign care throughout his life. And then he died. Then he was crucified and put to death on the cross. And his disciples thought, that's the end of the story. They gave up mid-story. But God raised him from the dead. And Peter preached on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, God's sovereign care over his life. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, but God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. See, at the last minute, at the right time, God raised up Jesus. He cared for him in this life, but that didn't mean no suffering or no trouble or no trial or no difficulty. In fact, for Jesus, it meant death by crucifixion. But then on the third day, God raised him up. And Jesus, too, learned obedience through the things he suffered. Hebrews 5.8 says, although he was a son, Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. And Jesus had no sin, but he was still taught what obedience looked like through his suffering. It was disciplinary, not in the sense of correction, Jesus had no sin to be corrected, but in the sense of training, as an athlete must discipline himself, and that discipline is painful. Athletes don't get better if their workout is not a challenge. Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. He learned what true obedience looks like. That is when you are willing to obey, not because you get something out of it, but simply to be obedient to the one over you. And yet, Jesus went beyond discipline, didn't he? He endured punishment for our sake. He was punished for our sin. He died in our place. Jesus received what we deserve, death for sin, that we might receive what he deserves, resurrection life. And he does deserve it. The one who has a right to all rule and power and authority and worship 
humbled himself, the one who was to be served, first came to serve. Mark 10, 45, Jesus says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. But Paul says this in Philippians 2, we read it earlier, Philippians 2, 6 through 11 says, though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God has amazing promises for his children, but the path to glory is through the cross. Suffering comes before exaltation. Serving comes before being served. Jesus took that path. God promises to Jacob, the older will serve the younger. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers, Genesis 27. But that was not to be yet. The one who would be served must first learn to be a servant. That is the word that is stressed in this chapter, by the way. The word for work or service is repeated again and again. Jacob served Laban for his bride. Jesus became a servant for the sake of his bride, the church, even unto death. But God kept his promises in the resurrection. And so covenant discipleship for Jesus looks like God's sovereign care, God's fatherly discipline, and service unto glory. As with Jacob, the son of Abraham, so with Jesus, the son of Abraham. Well, what then does that look like in the life of the Christian? It's not a trick question at this point. You know the answer. It looks like God's sovereign care, God's fatherly discipline, and service unto glory. First, God's sovereign care. Jesus came to institute a new covenant built upon the uh, covenants of old, what Paul calls the covenants of promise. And this new covenant is for all who believe in Jesus. If you are in covenant with God through Jesus, you too have the promises of God's sovereign care. Jesus says to his disciples not to worry about what they will eat or what they will drink or what they will wear. God provides for the birds and the grass. He'll provide for you too. Even in the face of persecution, Jesus promises God's care. He says in Matthew 10, 28-31, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. What does it mean that not one sparrow will fall to the ground apart from your father? Jesus uses that as an analogy to those whose bodies may be killed in persecution. Not one sparrow must mean God cares about each and every sparrow individually, just as he cares about you. And just as not one sparrow will fall to the ground apart from your father, so you will not fall to the ground apart from your father. And for that to be comforting, it must mean God is in control. Even when something as insignificant as a sparrow falls and dies. But you, you are of more value than many sparrows. Which means whatever happens in your life, it is in the immediate care of a sovereign God. 
Now, this doesn't mean everything in your life will be good. It wasn't for Jacob. It wasn't for Jesus. It hasn't been for countless numbers of followers of Christ ever since. But it does mean your life is in God's hands. Nothing will happen to you that he does not have a purpose for. God has purposed even our trials for our good. Trust him. Now, you can't, you, you cannot always know what God is up to. It can be dangerous to try to read providence. We don't have to understand what God is doing, though. We just have to trust him. Our good God has got us in his hands. Trust him. We walk in covenant relationship with God by trusting in his sovereign care. Second, we walk in covenant relationship with God by experiencing God's fatherly discipline. What Jacob did came back on him. Uh, Even Jesus learned obedience through suffering. God will bring hardship into your life to shape and mold you into his image. Now, this may take multiple forms. On the one hand, we reap what we sow. God often allows us to eat the fruits of our work. Galatians 6 says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Sometimes, if you do sinful things, you will reap the results of that in this life. This is a part of God's loving discipline to teach you to find satisfaction and fullness and hope and joy and safety and more in the one place it can be found in him. But, you know, we can't always and we should not seek to draw a line from our sin to our suffering. That's what Job's comforters wanted to do. Remember? And they were rebuked by God for it. Sometimes we must just endure hardship. It's still discipline, but not in the sense of punitive discipline. We must never think that God, if we belong to Christ, if we believe in Jesus, we must never think that God is punishing us. Our punishment was taken by Jesus on the cross. But there is still discipline. It's a pedagogical, a training, a transforming. God is shaping us, molding us into his image through discipline. Again, Hebrews 12, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. God is sovereign over your circumstances. Even your hardship is a part of his purposes and his desire to make you holy. Finally, humble yourselves as servants even as you anticipate the glory that is to come. You know, we, we take up our cross and follow Jesus. That's what God calls us to do. We, we have this mind in ourselves that was in Christ Jesus. He became a servant and he put others first. So become a servant and put others first. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And the humble he will exalt in his timing. Be conformed to the image of Jesus, the suffering servant. Become like him in his suffering that you may become like him in his resurrection. See, walking with God looks like accepting God's sovereign care in your life. He's in control. He's got you. You're in his hands. It looks like receiving God's fatherly discipline, accepting that the troubles in life are part of God's work to shape and mold you into his image. And then humble yourselves to serve even as we anticipate glory. May God give us the grace to so behold Jesus that we would become more and more like him day by day. Let's pray. 
Our Father, we do pray that you would conform us to the image of your Son who came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for us. Help us to look to him and believe in him and then take up our cross and follow him, even today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.